justliberty.org It's good for you and it's good for me Justliberty.org Justliberty.org Hi, I'm Amanda Marzullo, and along with Scott Henson, we're reasonably suspicious. Texas State Representative Pancho Navarez has announced he will not run for re-election after he accidentally dropped his cocaine stash in the Austin airport. The drugs were in an envelope from his personalized Texas House stationery. Scott, does this seem like a secure way to transport drugs? Well, I suppose there are less secure ways to transport <laughs> drugs. You, you could walk around the airport with a satchel that has, this is where I keep my cocaine printed <laughs> on, on, on it. it. Yeah, that might be a less secure um, way. But, but otherwise, Pancho Navarez. That's right. But otherwise, just labeling your cocaine with your own name and seal does seem, you know, a, a little much. But I will say it, it couldn't happen to a nicer guy. <laughs> I, <laughs> so, Someone who is more empathetic to people who are facing criminal penalties for low-level drug offenses, clearly, right? That's right. You know, while personally I don't believe that low-level drug possession needs to be a felony, I think that treating addiction as as a criminal justice issue is not a great idea. When somebody who has never lifted a finger to do anything about that is hoisted by their own petard, I I don't feel too bad about it. Yeah, yeah. All right. Hello, boys and girls, and welcome to the June 2019 episode of Just Liberty's Reasonably Suspicious Podcast covering Texas criminal justice, politics, and policy. I'm here today with our good friend Mandy Marzullo, who's executive director of the Texas Defender Service. How are you doing today, Mandy? Never been better, Scott. That's great. We have a fine show coming up for you, folks. Today, Austin cops tolerated racism in their ranks. Drug enforcement in Houston appears broken. And DNA mixture evidence comes under fire from a federal judge. Mandy, what are you looking forward to talking about on the podcast today? You know, the recent detention issue, actually, in Victoria County. I, you know, I'm, I'm always excited to talk about the criminalization of public health. And- well, it's a, it's a terrible story, but we'll get to that here pretty quick. First step, in Houston... The FBI has arrested two narcotics officers who orchestrated a botched raid on a house in the city's Pecan Park neighborhood that left the homeowners and their dog deathed and four officers injured. In the aftermath of that news, the Houston Chronicle published a detailed investigation identifying numerous allegations of prior misconduct in the narcotics division, which focused on low-level possession cases targeting mostly black neighborhoods. So Scott, What insight can we gain from this disgraceful episode? This really was disgraceful. And the Houston Chronicle's deep dive was incredibly revealing. Mm. Of dozens of officers affiliated with the narcotics unit, every single one of them, a majority of their arrests were of black folks, even though just 23% of the city's population are black. Gerald Goins, the officer who was most prominently on display in these recent indictments and who the FBI just arrested, his arrests were 95% black. Mm -hmm. And so what we're really seeing is that the drug enforcement practices at Houston PD are kind of stuck around 1990, right? There's about a 30-year-old yeah, and they're approach. Cl- and they're clearly out of step with best practices. I mean, you know, I think sort of the second line of the article was pointing out that narcotics officers really shouldn't exist, that people should cycle in and out of narcotics divisions due to all of the pressures that they're under. 
Right, because there's so much pressure for potential corruption, mm -hmm. especially for people who are in an undercover situation. You know, that's not something that someone should do for decades. That's yeah. something that should be done in very narrow circumstances under in a very controlled environment. And then that officer should probably just move on and do something else. That that shouldn't be like, oh, I do this for my 30-year <laughs> police officer career, which is what these fellows were doing. Exactly. Yeah, they were just – and that just seems – Almost like they were creating an environment to facilitate this behavior. Well, and even more bizarre, in the SWAT raid that launched this whole debate and that, that caused the Chronicle to investigate this in the first place, the informant that supposedly spawned all this was just made up. The <laughs> yeah. Goins had said that he had sent an informant in and that informant had bought drugs and seen firearms inside the house. And it turned out that informant did not exist and he just lied well i don't understand why you would do that and then it's sort of like the fruit of the poisonous tree the person who called in that the report that drew his attention to the house in the first place is also charged that's in right. this case that's right for making a false report although whether or not that report was false once the cops begin fabricating informants and <laughs> and and you know that to me is the big story i don't the 911 caller, I, I don't approve of like swatting houses. That's kind of what that is, where she oh, yeah. calls in 911 to get the SWAT team to go in. But the police have a responsibility to investigate before you do that. And when your investigation is, oh, I'm going to fabricate evidence and take it to a judge and get the judge to approve this no-knock warrant based on a lie that I know is a lie. Wow. Well, yeah, well, I guess that's what, you know, actually, I think it's Gwen's attorney who made a comment that the caller's charge is what really stood out to him about the case. But I think it actually is indicative because there are allegations that, you know, that call was made maliciously. Right. In right. order to send in the SWAT team, which that's means right. that they knew that just by making a one spurious phone call, you could actually have, you know, a militarized force deployed. Right. And this is something you see online. The phrase is swatting someone, right? Yeah. To make a false allegation that's intended to draw down the cops. And that may well have been what was going on here. Certainly the person was trying to make an apparently false allegation in one way or the other. But again, that level of culpability compared to then an officer taking that information no. and just fabricating evidence, taking it to the judge... <laughs> No, no, that it's no, 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 it. that, no. My point is, is that it's an index of how bad, right, the corruption is, and, and everyone that knows that that, that, that's that how it's it works. open and notorious that there is a problem in the narcotics division is what I think that charge is getting to, right? You know, obviously the facts are going to be flushed out more over the next several weeks. I don't want to be sued right now, although I'm probably judgment proof. Just saying. <laughs> <laughs> what really struck me here, we've not seen, frankly, this level of in-depth journalism on drug war cases yeah. since Texas shut down its system of regional narcotics task forces. For folks who aren't aware, about 20 years ago, there were some bad innocence cases where undercover drug cops were setting up innocent people very much like what caused this SWAT raid. And there was an array of reforms aimed at that that didn't seem to solve the problem. And eventually, Governor Perry just shut down about 
four dozen of these task forces mm-hmm. that were all around the state that engaged in exactly this type of low level drug enforcement that they're, you know, they're mainly going after these less than a gram cases. Mm-hmm. And I, I think they said 70% of the cases that this narcotics division made were all less than a gram cases. <laughs> yeah. So they're not actually getting to the supply chain. That's right. And moreover, of those less than a gram cases in 2018, 46% were dismissed. So they're not even mm-hmm. making cases the prosecutors are able to take forward yeah. in many cases. Really makes you think that that narcotics unit is just a black hole of malice and awfulness and maybe should just be flat out disbanded. Something's going on there that's gravely wrong. Yes. In many ways, DNA analysis amounts to the gold standard when it comes to forensic evidence. But when DNA from multiple sources is mixed, that gold standard status falls away and courts must rely on a murkier, much less certain brand of evidence. Longtime listeners will recall that problems arose in 2015 with bleeding-edge algorithms used to interpret DNA mixtures. Every crime lab in Texas was using flawed math to interpret this evidence. It was revealed at the time. State leaders urged crime labs to switch to an approach called probabilistic genotyping, which uses sophisticated Bayesian math to make estimates where there wasn't enough probative evidence to do so before. Texas courts have so far allowed this evidence, but have never formally ruled on whether the science underlying the method was reliable enough to use in court. But now a federal judge in Michigan, Judge Janet Neff, has declared the most common probabilistic genotyping software doesn't pass the Dalbert standard for admission into court. Mandy, this ruling doesn't apply in Texas, but it weighs in on an issue that's very much still playing out here and which may ultimately be decided by the U.S. Supreme Court. What are the implications if her stance prevails? What you're, you're sort of laying up in the question, which is that this form of DNA testing probably isn't a solution to the issue that they wanted it to solve. Because in her ruling, she's noting that you need a certain quantity of evidence to begin with. And that, you know, it can only be up like a maximum of three sources and at least 20% of the DNA needs to come from the target or the investigational target. And so, you know, it means that probably in touch DNA cases, which this is. Right. It was just several people had touched a handgun. Exactly. It was a felony possession of a firearms case, which in and of itself, it makes it kind of an interesting case to be running DNA on. It's sort of a low-level federal crime. Right. And in that case, it was 7%. And she said, you know, this just isn't reliable on the basis of that. Given everything that we know, we cannot admit this evidence. That's right. So it makes you wonder, well, what real benefit is there to these mixture testing? Right. When in, in Texas in 2015, when they told everyone to switch to this probabilistic genotyping, previously they had used a method that was based on more traditional statistics, and it required there to be a minimum amount of DNA in order to test. And the problem is with mixtures, with DNA mixtures, once you overlay multiple people's DNA, sometimes you have what's called allele dropout which means that certain amounts of evidence get washed out by there Mm -hmm. being multiple folks. And 
what this probabilistic genotyping does is use these very sophisticated mathematical models, these Monte Carlo, Markov chain mathematical models that are way beyond my ability to truly understand, to estimate what those alleles would have been if they had not been washed out. So you're sort of estimating what evidence would exist if if it it existed, except it doesn't, so we only have your estimate. And because of that, the probability software has a different result every single time because it's just an estimate. It's not actually measuring something. It's estimating what would be there. And it turns out, even with this probabilistic genotyping, we still have to have a fair amount of the DNA there. That's what this judge is saying. You can't just have like single digit percentages mm-hmm. and and we're making estimates at that level. You need you need some volume of DNA to to make a judgment from. And with the 7% that was in this case, they were saying you're really just talking about a few cells to judge from and it's just not quite probative. We were told here in Texas when they switched from the old method to the new one that the big barrier to success was still going to be, okay, some DNA is just too complicated to judge. We were told you can't, you can't yeah. analyze crap. I think he was also saying too um, in, in his presentations that, you know, a lot of DNA analysis really depends on the number of contributors and what you know about who's been handling the evidence. That's right. And, you know, that, you know, the devil is in these multiple mixture samples where they don't know how many people have actually contributed to the sample. So you might falsely conclude that someone is a match if you think that it's two, like a two sample person, but if it's three, that person may actually be excluded. So the devil is in the details here. And from, from this opinion, she's saying that more than three you should never be using this method. And and I think a lot of police departments are sending in DNA samples with four, five, six contributors or, or that they just don't know. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about here, like, you know, I'm sitting at your, your dining room table and touching your tablecloth. You know, if someone came in and, you know, for some reason they wanted to know if I had been here and verified it, they don't know how many people have sat at your table. That's right. That's right. Since since the tablecloth was changed out, it might have been a dozen folks who've sat here. And so what number do you put in? You say, well, how many? what's the number of contributors? That's something the DNA analyst is supposed to put in. Well, if you really have no basis to know whatsoever, it's a big problem. Yeah. So I feel like that fi- I'm very gratified that finally some judge has really dug deep into this. I felt like here in Texas, all of the decisions would elide this core Daubert issue or Daubert issue. I'm, I never know how to pronounce this. I've had people always say Daubert, but you know, I'm not sure. That's right. Well, regardless, you know, I've been waiting for someone to really take a deep dive on this question because a lot of questions were raised for me when we first heard these analyses four years ago in, in Texas. And she raised a lot of the same concerns. And it's not that, you know, technology won't ever be able to get there, but it's not there now. And this is the truly bleeding edge of biology. A lot of these are, are basically experimental methods mm-hmm. that are that are being used. And we, we hope they're right, but it's just a little soon to be using it in such a widespread way. So this obviously is the beginning of a debate. 
that has to go all the way up the chain in Michigan and other district, other uh, circuits will we'll pick it eventually up. pick it up or, or look at this. But I feel like this is the starting gun for the debate I've, I've been waiting for on this topic. Now it's time to play fill in the blank in which Mandy and I suggest different ways to finish the same sentence. First up, a young man named Clinton Harrington died of withdrawal symptoms in the Victoria County Jail after jailers took him off a prescribed methadone treatment he was receiving to combat a heroin addiction. Medical records indicated he died in excruciating pain without proper care, the paper reported. Harrington's death was officially attributed to natural causes, with the Travis County Medical Examiner saying it was caused by complications from hypertension and serotonin toxicity. But medical experts dismissed that finding, pointing to the jail weaning him off methadone much more quickly than established protocols would dictate. So, Mandy, fill in the blank. Mr. Harrington died because... Because our justice system criminalizes drug addiction and poverty. He was detained on drug possession. He had like a cocktail of marijuana, Xanax, and meth in his pocket. But the reporting that I saw didn't intake, indicate that there was any intent to distribute there. It was just possession of those drugs. That's right. He's somebody who had had a severe injury, gotten hooked on opioids via painkillers, and ended well, self-medicating. Up, that's right. Well, self-medicating ended up on the methadone to get off of the opioids, but had run into addiction trouble. Yeah. So, so right there, you know, I think a lot of experts would argue that he shouldn't have been held in detention at that point. He's being held because he can't make bail. His grandmother is trying to scrape together funds to get him out. And in the meantime, he asks for help with his addiction, just also demonstrating that he is someone who is looking to lead a productive life. Right. And in the process you know, the the jail, to its credit, works with the local methadone clinic to put together a treatment plan, or I think it was like a 10-day or a 10-step plan by which he'd be weaned off the methadone, but it was too quick. And in the process, he was requesting help, and the jail wasn't responding. And the, the, the stories here are particularly dramatic because he apparently they needed him to request assistance in writing, but he was in too much pain to fill out the form. So someone else was completing it for him. And I don't, any medical care assistance program that requires someone to fill out a form is crazy. Right. Well, and that, that gets me to my answer. I would say that Mr. Harrington died because the jail simply didn't care. They were, they sent the jailers simply, weren't exhibiting sort of the basic humanity you would when a human being is is in excruciating pain. I mean, we saw this happened over and over for days, and he's mm-hmm. asking for help. And somebody somewhere should have figured out something was wrong. Yes, they'd gotten this, this nine-day step down from the clinic, and all of the experts that the reporter talked to nationally said that's way too short, mm-hmm. that it should take many weeks to step down from the level of methadone he was on. And so that clinic definitely has some answering to do. 
But once things got as bad as they clearly got, the healthcare staff in the jail should have intervened. The jailer <laughs> should have been taking the guy to the hospital. Yeah, no, there were reports that he was convulsing. He didn't have control over his hands. At that point, it's an emergency situation. You don't wait for someone to fill out a form and to process paperwork. That's exactly right. So this is a tragedy compounded by really just neglect from my perspective. I feel like, yes, there was a medical error made that was outside of the jail's control, but that was the start of the problem. Every step down the path was exacerbated by them just not seeming to prioritize. Well, you should never, someone who's suffering from that level of an addiction problem, just it's, I think it's inappropriate for them to be in the justice system. That's right. The jail's not the place to get drug treatment in the first place. And it's not simply drug treatment to take someone who's so addicted they have that severe withdrawal and just take them off cold turkey, which is the only reason jail might be where you even do in the mix. it. So, yeah, th- this is evidence that that's just a bad approach from the get go. <laughs> Next one, an assistant chief at the Austin PD named Justin Newsom resigned after a whistleblower revealed that he used racist language in departmental communications, including text and emails in which he used the N-word to describe fellow officers. Newsom characterized the conversations as taking place, quote, among friends, but they were all official police communications related to department business. Newsom retired before the department could investigate or discipline him. So, Scott, fill in the blank. Chief Newsom's racist communications are... The tip of the iceberg. Earlier this year, we talked about the Plain View Project, which was an analysis of social media posts from nine different police agencies, including a couple in Texas. And at each of these agencies, they found that around 15% of officers overall that they analyzed were issuing these racist or misogynistic Mm. or hyper-violent, problematic social media posts. And this was something that was consistent across agencies. They all had this sort of underbelly, this subculture that was engaging in this type of behavior. Well, what this tells us is the social media are just the boldest and brashest of Mm. those folks. I mean, what's going on in internal communications in this case was even more revealing. And uh, local advocates, in fact, have, have been calling for in the wake of this for Austin PD to do an analysis of the internal communications, of the mm-hmm. text messages, the emails, the instant messaging to identify whether there are other officers who were you know, engaging this type of behavior. Calling your, your fellow officers, you know, dumb N words is pretty brazen. And this is an assistant chief. The people he was saying, the friends he was communicating with were other assistant chiefs. So it isn't really just, oh, that's just what I say among friends. Yeah, all your friends are high-ranking cops. So that's not making us feel better. Yeah, and I, I, I agree absolutely. I think, you know, the only thing that I'd add to that or sort of supplement is that, you know, for the social libertarians out there who really believe in the First Amendment, this is counter to the Austin PD's mission. This type of language means that there are factions within its staff, that different pieces of the organization are not working together because of how they're viewing each other. 
and it destroys the relationship with the community. Moreover, if you want to exercise your First Amendment rights to, to issue racist commentary, then you don't need to be wearing a badge and a gun to do that, right? It's one thing to say, I have a First Amendment right to behave that way. But when you're doing it on the job as a police officer. Yeah, and that's the thing, right? Is that like you're on the job as a police officer and you can't do your job. No informant from a minority community is going to want to give information to a police officer who they know has a racial bias against them. That's right. So, I mean, it, like just right there, the function is being undermined by this behavior. And I would dare say that probably uh, African-American police officers probably wouldn't be too interested in working with the guy either. So <laughs> yeah, on top of that, you know, I just want to just drive that last point home in case any of our conservative listeners have any doubt. Right. You can exercise your First Amendment rights to be a racist on your own time, is, is my thought. Maybe. But as a police officer, leave that stuff at home. Okay, last one. The Sixth Amendment Center issued a major report about the right to counsel and indigent defense commissioned by Potter and Armstrong counties using federal grant funds. They found that many indigent defendants, especially those accused of misdemeanors, may not have had counsel appointed at all. And those who do get lawyers may be represented in name only, typically receiving very low-quality representation. The report in part attributed this to paying lawyers a flat fee, so they made the same money whether they worked hard or not. Attorneys were also radically overworked, with lawyers carrying caseloads up to eight times as high as recommended by the Texas Indigent Defense Commission. So, Mandy, fill in the blank. The problems with indigent defense in Potter and Armstrong County stems from... I'd say both pervasive problems with Texas's indigent defense system and a local problem where the courts have allowed themselves to be sort of co-opted by law enforcement. You know, with respect to sort of the broader impact indigent defense problems. I mean, Potter Potter and Armstrong counties are among those in Texas that have had historically a hard time getting their indigent defense system off the ground. You know, they're, they're underfunded. The judges who preside over their cases are often county commissioners. It may not even be lawyers. Who and are, not that many lawyers there to begin with. Yeah. On top of that. So, my first job out of law school was talking to judges like this who didn't know that there was a Sixth Amendment right to counsel in misdemeanor cases. Right. But it's also that sort of structural problems that the report highlights. You know, you have crazy caseloads for the attorneys that do take these appointments. They're not being compensated adequately. There's no access to defense investigation services. Really, the system is on the is failing. I wouldn't even say it's on the brink of failing. It is failing. And then on top of that, you have a local practice where jailers essentially are a pro are responsible for informing defendants of their right to counsel and discouraging them from invoking it because they're also the ones investigating sometimes. That is completely inappropriate. The courts shouldn't be allowing that to happen. Right. Well, when a cop is the one informing you that you have a right to counsel and is simultaneously discouraging you from exercising it. And that, putting you in a That amounts cage. to intimidation. Yeah, no, it is intimidation. So I, I, I definitely agree with that. I would say that the problem there stems from, frankly, crappy judges. I think that the judges, and I know some of them, you know, maybe the, on, on, on some of these issues are decided by the county judge who may not even be an attorney. But 
clearly the judges are just allowing practices that are illegal, unconstitutional. This intimidation of people out of the right to counsel mm-hmm. is is very bad news. There is another allegation, not an allegation, it was an observation that judges were requiring indigent defendants to repay the cost of their attorneys without having any hearing or any analysis of whether they could afford to. The report declared this is brazenly against Texas state law. and But bizarrely, brazenly throughout the state. Right. That is something that has been occurring for at least a decade, I think perhaps even longer. But very clearly... The judges were just ignoring some of their fundamental duties in these processes mm-hmm. to try and make the cases clear more quickly. But you're putting your thumb on the scale on behalf of the prosecution, oh. in, in essence, over and over and over. And with 74% of misdemeanor defendants proceeding pro se without an attorney at all, what chance do those folks have? Yeah, really? no. Well, They're the, just being ground up in the system. Yeah, no. I mean, the system is just a tool for prosecution. The prosecutor is the only lawyer in the room. They're the ones that are controlling what's happening. And so, you know, they win every time. Right. So I do agree with you that there's some uh, state level patterns and practices that this is just an example of. At the same time, I feel like we do always have to come back to holding these local decision makers accountable because that's who that responsibility lies with to make sure that the defendants are treated fairly. And they're not. Yeah, No, they're not. I just want to point out that it, if we fix these two counties, we still have dozens more where these problems are occurring. Now it's time for our rapid-fire segment we call The Last Hurrah. Mandy, are you ready? All set. Let's do this. Federal bail litigation in Harris County has finally concluded after Judge Lee Rosenthal signed off on long-awaited settlement language and issued a consent decree. Mandy, what should the public take away from this outcome? You know, this is an exciting improvement in Harris County, and I'm thrilled, and the public should be thrilled, that we're not spending millions of dollars to detain people who are not a threat to public safety. What's also exciting is that this is a really big civil rights victory that was obtained in Texas courts. I mean, it's a federal court, but it's still a Texas-based court. And that means that I think it holds a prospect for future litigation. Right, right. There was a lot of people who thought the Fifth Circuit would never let something like this happen, and and here we are. Next one. Governor Abbott ordered state agencies to intervene after Austin modified but refused to abandon its stance against arresting homeless people for sitting or lying down on public property. The Department of Transportation has begun cleaning out homeless encampments under highway overpasses, and the governor ordered a camping site set up for the homeless east of town. Scott, what do you make of this outcome? Part of me finds this quite funny, I have to say, (laughs) because I had written on my blog that if Governor Abbott intervened in Austin's situation, that he would own the homeless issue, that if homelessness continued afterward, that it would be his responsibility to Mm -hmm. be on him. Well, now he literally owns his own homeless encampment, (laughs) which he has created without any budget line item, without any staff, without any facilities. I'm not sure this was the outcome that he intended, but I find it kind of humorous. He, He not only owns the issue politically, he literally now owns his own homeless encampment. That's amazing to me. Okay, last one. 
Last month, we interviewed attorneys for Rodney Reed, who was scheduled to be executed on November 20th. Since then, bipartisan legislative support has arisen for the governor to issue a reprieve. Celebrities from Kim Kardashian to Dr. Phil have weighed in on the case, and the Court of Criminal Appeals stayed his execution to consider his actual innocence claims, among others. Mandy, why has Reed's situation generated so much public support for his position compared to other death penalty cases? So I think it's two things. I think the first thing that's really kind of important for courts to keep in mind, especially as they're looking at this case, is that it is kind of extraordinary. There are a lot of issues with his case, questions that really go to the heart as to whether or not he did it that have remained unresolved despite decades of litigation. You know, I think the other piece is that there's a growing consensus, you know, in the public and within state government that the death penalty really should be reserved for extraordinary cases that are really severe and where we're really certain about the facts. The Gallup poll just came out and for the first time, I think since the 1970s, a majority of Americans support life without parole over the death penalty, even death penalty sort of proponents when they're pushing legislation to expand use of the death penalty in Texas, like we saw this past session, they're doing it with opening statements saying, yeah, there are problems with how the death penalty is administered, and we need to be mindful of that. And I think that's why we had such an overwhelming number of politicians in Texas, from Ted Cruz to the most liberal Democrats, saying that an execution was inappropriate in this case at this time. All right. Well, we're out of time, but we'll try and do better the next time. Until then, this is Scott Hinson with Just Liberty. And I'm Amanda Marzullo with the Texas Defender Service. Goodbye, and thanks for listening. You can subscribe to the Reasonably Suspicious podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud, or listen to it on my blog, Richer Breakfast. We'll be back next month with more and hopefully better news. And until then, keep fighting for criminal justice reform. It's the only way it's going to happen. Just a quick shout out to Judge Alcala. We miss you, as always, and to Incha with the Vera Institute of Justice. All right.